The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 99 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the CISO of Siena, Andy Benillo. I want to emphasize on all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security concerns I presently hold or have had held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, oh man, the producers had uh, last week off because our show airs on Labor Day. Uh, that's airs on Monday, as you know. And, uh, of course, like many other Americans, they have off on Labor Day, a very well-deserved day off. So we had two back-to-back badass encore episodes of Task Force 7 Radio posted to our episode library. And we aired the August 2019 encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio. It's episode number 86, titled Baltimore Blames NSA for Nasty Ransomware Attack. And that featured CNBC reporter and author of the new cybersecurity book, Kingdom of Lies, Kate Fazzini, on the show. So if you missed this episode, this is the perfect opportunity to hear it. Kate did really, really well. The the, the show, uh, the episode, did phenomenal in the numbers. And she discussed the accusations by City of Baltimore officials that the NSA is to blame for the recent ransomware attack that has crippled their city, which, by the way, we are going to be talking about ransomware tonight on tonight's episode, so stay tuned for a lot more information on this evening's show about ransomware. So Fazzini also talked about the cybersecurity issues in the Mueller report, election security, which we always talk about on the show, the role social media companies play in our national security, and how history has shown us that some cybersecurity practitioners are just not very effective at their jobs. You know, I think many of us out there know a little bit about what I'm talking about. So I also got into a detailed discussion with her about 5G emerging technologies, Huawei, which is you know, a big topic on the show all the time, and how the controversial company is driving discord between 5i nations, which really just drives me crazy, and how the cybersecurity plays into the recent trade talks between the United States and China. And so all that, on, and, and we have much, much more on the show. Uh, that was a really, really just jam-packed show full of information on the August 2019 Encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio. That's episode number 86, folks. Should you be close to the top of your library list for you right now? So if you just go there, it should be like probably number two right from the top. Very easy for you to find. So, so for the Labor Day holiday, we once again aired an Encore episode for your listening pleasure. That was episode number 36 titled How Cybersecurity Can Enable Digital Transformation with my good friend, William Beer. And this was a really popular show as well. And Beer talked about how the cybersecurity domain can work to enable business in the digital transformation era. He also gave us his expert opinion on the digital and fintech-driven disruption and transformation occurring across the industry and what kind of new technologies he is seeing in the digital space that are disruptive and what kind of impact they're having in the, in, in the cybersecurity space. But Beer also talked about digital trust, you know, which a lot of companies are struggling with today. And it's a big topic of discussion among executives in the technology space. And he basically went over the importance of speed and agility 
in cybersecurity, which we can't emphasize enough, as well as the importance of managing third and fourth party risk in this whole process. So that's another Encore episode posted on Labor Day. That's episode number 36 of Task Force 7 Radio. It's right at the top of your TF7 Radio episode library. It should be right there. Just go ahead and take a look. If you haven't listened to it yet, I I highly recommend you do. And last but not least, yeah, it's been a really busy week here at Task Force 7 Radio. It's a lot lot of show, a lot of stuff going on. A big shout out and thank you to the IT Security Program Manager at KII Partners, Jamal Hartenstein, for appearing on episode number 98 with co-host Andy Bonello and I. Jamal delved into the difference between data privacy and data security and how both large and small organizations in both the public and private sectors approach implementing their cybersecurity programs differently. So Jamal spoke about what his favorite blockchain projects are. And I know everybody, every time we do blockchain on this show, the, the, everyone goes nuts. People really love this uh, topic. And so we got to do a lot more full episodes full of blockchain topics. And um, he basically spoke about the blockchain topics that are his favorite, as well as the, the current dilemmas with immutability versus the right to be forgotten and the relationship these technologies have to data privacy and cybersecurity law. So Andy and I discussed with Jamal the importance of local law enforcement understanding current local, state, and federal cyber laws and what role cybersecurity plays in the execution of local law enforcement, as well as the effects these executive orders have down, come, coming down from the president on, cyber, on the cybersecurity industry. So I thought the local law enforcement discussion was particularly interesting. Um, if, you're, if you're in local law enforcement, you definitely want to take a listen. Um, I think cybersecurity is much more important uh, than the emphasis it's given in local law enforcement, and I think it could really help uh, officers do their jobs uh, uh, much better and much differently than they do today um, if we had a more training and awareness done on the local level. And so very interesting stuff. So if you're interested in data privacy and data security, it's really all the rage out there in the industry these days. Don't miss our last episode with Jamal Hartenstein. That's episode number 98 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which we think is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio. And you can even write comments on the different news articles and topics that we are talking about, which is also a lot of fun. So we're on at least 11 different playback mediums, folks. At least 11, I probably, I think 12 now. I think we're on 12 different playback mediums. Just hit the subscribe button at the top of, right of the homepage, and you'll see a list of the entire selection of playback mediums that you can go to. But most importantly, you can really subscribe right to our show, right from the TF7 Radio website, which we think is the best way to stay connected to the extended TF7 family going into the future. This way you get all the TF7 Radio updates right from the site, and as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 Extras and Encore episodes like the ones I just spoke about that are really, really cool. TF7 news and events and information on the upcoming TF7 network too. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So tonight, we're going to have a special guest return to the show. His name is Alan Espinosa. And Alan is the current director of security operations for a company called Online Business Systems. It's a privately held information technology and business consultancy. And he brings more than 21 years of cybersecurity and IT experience to the show, spanning various companies, sectors, and industries, ranging from nonprofit organizations to global enterprises, including Siemens and Google. Espinosa has also been featured on NBC News regarding ID theft, juice jacking, ATM skimming, and all other personnel security concerns. He has written for multiple publications and has presented as a keynote speaker at a number of conferences throughout the country. And what's really cool about Alan Espinosa is he currently serves on the board of directors for the InfraGuard National Members Alliance. That's a partnership between the FBI 
and members of the private sector, where he helps lead efforts to protect the 16 critical infrastructures of the United States. Specifically, he is the chairman of the InfraGuard Technology Committee, which recommends and implements technology for the organization and partners with the FBI on technology roadmaps. So we're all checked up about having Alan back on the show with us. So it's time, folks. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the show a member of the Board of Directors for InfraGuard, Alan Espinosa. Alan, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Oh, thank you, George. My pleasure to be back and always an honor to be on with you. Hey, we're really glad you're here with us. And lately, there's been so many reports and high-profile incidents around ransomware. We thought it's time to do a show uh, and talk a little bit about ransomware, and we figured there was no better guy uh, than you to come on and talk to us about it. So let's level set the, the conversation for the folks out there right off the bat. What is ransomware? So we just get the, the definition, and we're all speaking from the same sheet of music. Sure, absolutely. So r- ransomware is essentially a um, software that gets installed on someone's computer unwillingly, and we'll, we can get into that later, uh, and it encrypts the person's files. Translation, encryption is really locking files. So if you kind of think about it, picture, you know, picture of physical files that you may have laying around at home and someone sort of coming, if you will, and throwing them in a file cabinet, locking it, walking away and saying to you, hey, you want your files back? You want the key to this file cabinet? Now you're going to have to pay me. And so, therefore, that's why it's called ransomware. They hold your files, your data at ransom. And that could be, you know, your personal computer, someone's personal computer, could be corporations, servers, all sorts of systems could be held at ransom. So, this type of criminal activity is proliferating very fast across a, a variety of different sectors and verticals and different geographic locations. It seems no one's safe. And how does this ransomware actually spread in a network? Um, so there, there are several different ways. So, at, at, you know, the, the ransomware needs to, get, needs to be installed, right? And so one of the ways that happens, one of the most common ways really is through email attachments. So the, the malicious actors, by the way, that perpetrate this, they don't, this is, they don't necessarily target a person per se, although sometimes they do or a corporation, but they'll send out emails and we can talk more about that, but they'll send out emails and the email will arrive in someone's inbox and they'll, you know, be curious about it and there'll be an attachment. It's, it could be a PDF file, it could be a Word doc, it could be any variety of files, quite honestly. They click, they open that file, and then the ransomware gets installed. And the moment it gets installed, that's it. At that point, they have your data captive and you have to, uh, you know, you have to kind of take it from there. Uh, other ways of it installing are what are called drive-by downloads. So that's where you visit a site that is hosting the malware. So the malicious actors, they actually set up websites that have this code on it. Uh, and the moment you visit it, it you know, attempts at least to install onto a person's computer. Um, so there, there are, and there are different ways that you, you may end up in those websites, by the way. Right, so there's, there's phishing attacks and then there's drive-by attacks, right? So. This goes to, and this speaks to, I think, the cybersecurity hygiene and the actual need for employees to have access to external email. And I, I, when I think about this across organizations and I talk to people, I don't, there really are no restrictions to external email in most organizations. Just everybody has it. You know, everybody has access to this. And, and if you didn't have access to it, you didn't really need it, right? You didn't have access to it. Then that would eliminate one of these attack vectors that you're talking about, wouldn't it? It would, yes, most certainly. Um, and what I'm, what I'm seeing companies do, you know, more and more is they'll set up in their email systems uh, warning flags, if you will, or even banners, where if they receive an email from, that's from, you know, from an external source, there'll be a banner that says something yeah. to the effect of, you know, this, is a, this, is a, this email is not from, in, from this company, you know, please be careful, opening the attachment, et cetera. So they're, they're kind of measures like that. But yeah, at the end of the day, in order to tr- transact business, for the most part, in most roles, at least uh, in modern day, you know, uh, folks need email. They need to utilize email. So, yeah, you know, it just, just, just reminds me back in my J.P. Morgan Chase days when we put in some fraud prevention controls in the call centers to prevent call center fraud. People were calling in and they were getting access to other people's accounts. They were doing account takeovers over the phone. And these call center folks wouldn't follow policies and procedures. So we put up these big banners in the thing and in, in, in their screen. 
that said, hey, you know, be careful, this, you know, uh, this is happening or this needs to be authenticated or ask this question or whatever. And at some point, we were even putting, you know, banners up there that said, hey, this isn't the guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> this isn't the guy who owns that account. And it didn't matter, the person <laughs> gave him the money anyway, right? And so I think when you're looking at these, uh, you know, and I don't really think it's ultra aggressive. I just think it's a, a matter of eliminating the risk, right? Just eliminate, the, there, there's, Sometimes you can eliminate some risk if the people don't need access to these external uh, tools, right? If you don't need the access to external email, then I think getting rid of that altogether instead of putting up what some people would call a speed bump, right? Because people don't listen to the speed bumps either to some degree. You're still going to get a certain percentage of people that are going to go ahead and, and engage in that activity anyway. But you said before something about that was very interesting to me. You said that the uh, the perpetrators didn't really have any special targets when they when they're looking uh, to take over people's accounts using this ransomware. Is it sort of like a spray and pray type of operation they got going on? I mean, is that what happened to Baltimore, where they just you know they got caught up in a spray and pray? Was one of their employees received an email and clicked on it, and that was it? Locked down everything. What happened? Yeah, I, w- I would say generally speaking, it is spray and pray. Quite honestly, it's all very automated. Right, so they're not necessarily, um, you know, sitting there and picking, especially smaller companies or, or individuals for that matter, home users. Uh, you know, perpetrators aren't sitting there picking these folks out and saying, okay, I'm going to send George Reedus, you know, uh, this email or whatnot. Uh, in some cases, and I and I would say, I mean, the, the data's not out yet, but in the case of Texas, for example, where I reside, um, we currently have a problem. There are 22 cities that have been affected by ransomware uh, in this last week. Uh, quite honestly. So it's a, it's a pretty significant problem. Now, in that case, and maybe perhaps in the case of Baltimore, the Georgia court systems, and we could go on um, with the number of the places that have been hit. I think in some of those cases, it's, it's, it's targeted. It's probably targeted at least. Um, because if you look at the targets, they're what I would call soft targets, quite honestly, when it comes to cybersecurity posture. It's typically cities. It's government, you know, local government who, um, you know, oftentimes doesn't have the funds, quite honestly. It's not a matter of a lack of desire, uh, but it's a lack of funds. I, I just and read network yesterday. segmentation is like not always there either, right? So you could have the water department on the same network as the sheriff's department and, you know, somebody clicks on one, it routes to one department to another, right? The critical systems are just so interconnected, it's scary. Absolutely, yeah. And again, it boils down, I've worked with them, it comes down to resources. I know in Texas, again, with the, with the little information we have currently, it appears that what these cities had in common was a particular IT service provider. Again, the info is not out, but that's what it appears. So that may have been how the, the uh, ransomware, you know, got on their systems. So <clears throat> it seems to me that you know, you made a really good point about these local governments, right? Not only are they, I guess, more susceptible because they don't have the controls in place, their defense and death posture really isn't there, right? It's not solid by any means. But not only that, but they have these emergency services that people's lives, you know, depend on. Like, people depend on, you know, 911 emergency services. And, the, you know, if you call the ambulance, the ambulance is going to show up to your house and, now, all these medical records at, at hospitals that, you know, people can't get access to. I mean, they're incentivized to pay, right? So, so what, are, what are your options if you get ransomware? What are, the, what are the usual options that you get from these bad guys? So from, from the bad guys, the option you get from them is really one option, and that is to pay. So, you'll, you know, once the system is infected, there'll be a, a notification that shows up on your screen, essentially telling you you have X amount of time. Some of them give you more than others. Three days seems to be more or less the average amount of time. They'll, they'll tell you that. That's it? They're giving you, know, you three days? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and interestingly enough, they, they actually, some, they, sometimes they present to you sort of tiers of payment. So they'll say, well, if you pay within, you know, 36 hours, it'll be X amount. But if you go beyond that, it'll be another amount. They actually, like a flash uh, you know, sale. exactly. Yeah. It's like, uh-huh. act, you know, act now and you'll get your data. Exactly. So, you know, they'll, they'll put up this notification. It'll give you some amount of time telling you how much you have to pay. It's in, always in Bitcoin, of course. Um, so it's essentially not, you know. Ah, that's what I was going to ask next. Okay, so you got, you got uh, three days to pay us in Bitcoin, X amount of dollars. How much do they usually ask for? Well, that's increased drastically, and they do customize it depending on who they hit. So what I've seen for sort of the average home user, if you will, 
um, a lot of times that's, you know, $350 up to $1,000. You know, they, they're, they're smart. They try to make it affordable, right? <laughs> they're not going to ask, you know, perhaps you and I for $50,000, which we may right. not have. So gracious. So gracious. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, I, but I will say, with, and certainly without naming anyone, I just worked this past week with a uh, small corporation here in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area um, that was hidden. They were asked for $20,000 for their files to be unlocked. So, but George, to answer your question about options, so, you know, one option, of course, is to pay the ransom. Um, now, I will say uh, personally, and especially that I, that I, you know, partner with the FBI, that, uh, you know, I do not recommend paying the ransom, as does, you know, the FBI doesn't recommend it, or law enforcement for that matter. Uh, because in reality, you're funding a criminal organization, and in some cases, or increasingly, you're actually funding potentially terrorism, which is, uh, this is one of the ways that some of those organizations are starting to raise funds for themselves. So, so, so where does a backup fit into this, right? You've got, mm -hmm. you talk about phishing and drive-by downloads, but like, at some point, you know, you got to look at the, you know, is that data backed up, and if, if everybody backed up their data, would ransomware even be as effective, yeah, great question. So, uh, yeah, so other than, other than paying the ransom, the other option that I always explore first and foremost with anybody uh, is the backup. So if you have your data backed up, then, you know, the joke's on the ransomware, malicious actors, if you will, because you can just restore, although that does take time and that can cost money. So it's not that it's without effort. But yeah, if you have a good backup of your right. data, then you should be in pretty good shape and hopefully... Uh, there's, uh, you know, minimize the loss. Quite well, it definitely costs time and money. And I think <clears throat> that's one of the reasons why a lot of companies don't have a backup because they're always cutting corners and, 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 you know, trying to cut costs and doing things. And then they get caught up in something like this. And then they have their options are to pay or not to pay. And it's such a terrible, terrible position to be in. I mean, you know, if you don't pay, you don't have your files, you can lose your entire business. So you got a, you know, you got a real estate business. Say so you got 50 employees. You say you're doing like a large commercial uh, real estate business, say like California or, or South Florida, and then you get hit with this ransomware. Man, it could wipe you out. Wipe you out. Now, how many people in your company will lose their jobs? How many kids, you know, you know will have to move? The people will sell their houses, to pull their kids out of college. I mean, the ramifications are enormous. And the pressure on the decision maker, you know, the CEO of the company I mean, it's no birthday party. Like, you got to make a decision because, like you said, if you fund this, if you, if you pay and you go back up in business and save everybody's jobs, including your own and your own family's, you know, future potentially, right, then you could be funding criminal activity and even, even terrorism, right? So, yep. what, what are people doing mostly? Do you know? Do you know how many, like, what, how many people actually pay? Did they just pay and just uh, move on with life or what? I, I have found in the many companies and individuals I work with that a lot of them do pay. Um, simply because they don't have the proper backup. So they had a backup. I would say most, not all, uh, especially, you know, small to medium-sized businesses. They will have a backup, and in a lot of cases, that backup is also encrypted. So they had that backup attached to their network, right. and thus that's also being oh. held at, at ransom oh. as well. Double hit. Oh. Double hit. Right. Oh, man, that's terrible. So, where's the, yeah. so let's say I pay, right, and I want to go to my insurance company and go, hey, look, I just paid on this thing. You know, are, people, are, are insurance companies paying? They are. As a matter of fact, uh, Lakes, Lake City, Florida, just recently was held at ransom, and the ransom was $460,000. Um, and their insurance policy actually, policy actually paid out. They ended up with a $10,000 deductible, so at least the taxpayer hit wasn't four sixty, but rather $10,000. Um, but that's, you know, that's also tricky. Like any insurance policy, you, you need to meet the requirements of the insurance policy. And most of these cyber-related policies talk about due diligence. <laughs> so if you're able to prove that you did your due diligence, you did everything within your, you know, uh, reasonable means to protect your data and took whatever recommended steps that even the insurance company may have given you, then, okay, well, the, you know, then you're, you're covered, if you will. Um, and by the way, uh, if you do pay the ransom, let's say you have the scenario where, you, you know, the insurance company pays great, so you're not out that money, et cetera. There's absolutely no guarantee that paying the ransom will get your data back. Because uh, 
again, once you send the money, there's no recourse, right? You can't go to the, the law, you know, law enforcement and say, hey, these people didn't pay. Let me take these people that are in some other country where we have no jurisdiction and maybe very difficult to trace the court. That's not going to happen. So, um, and that's the advice I give folks is when they tell me that it looks like they're going to have to pay the ransom. I say, all right, well, understand the risk here. It's really about 50-50, 50% of the time. Now, I will say more recently, I've seen more cases where people have gotten their data back. And I would say it's because, uh, again, these criminals are entrepreneurs and they've come to realize that, hey, if they want to continue to be in business, <laughs> they're going to need to hand over the keys so that people will, you know, continue to pay. Right. If, they're, if people start paying and they don't give them back their files and give them the keys to the files, right? And then, you know, they're not, gonna, they're not going to uh, continue to do business. No one's going to trust them. Right? Exactly. If you pay me. Yeah, you remember the, remember, remember the scene on Usual Suspects when the guys were all lined up? Give me the keys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just remind you, know, every time I think about encrypted keys, I'm thinking about this guy up on there. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a great movie. You got to see it. But if you haven't seen it. But I think about this. Um, I think about this in, in a different way. I, I, I got to tell you, can you get arrested for, for you know, paying the ransom? I mean, I know you're not a lawyer or law enforcement officer, but I mean, have you have any have you had any uh, heard of any instances where people were getting arrested for paying the ransom? I have not heard of an instance, but I have been uh, I have asked that question, have been asked that question around law enforcement, and frankly, it's a little bit of a gray area. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't seem to get a straight answer myself, Andy. You, you, you I, I haven't, but you could you imagine if you had like your your, your kid was kidnapped, right? And you paid the ransom to get your kid back. If you got arrested, the headline that would be, right? Right. I mean, I right. can't imagine like anyone would do that, but you never know, right? I mean, depending on if you had knowingly. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. So if it's your kid, you can pay, but if it's your business, you can't. Yeah, yeah right. Like who knows, right? It's crazy. Yeah, I, I think mm. I think for I, I suspect that for now, and again, I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of law enforcement on this matter, but I would suspect that for now. They're just gonna kind of let that go, and uh, I don't think anybody's. I think, think you have to knowingly prove intent. That, like you were like conspiring with the ransom right. attacker to like if you were an insider, right, George? You're an insider yeah. company, and you colluded with some you know you know attacker to to send a ransomware note. Then that would be different, right? Yeah, we gotta get we gotta get a former AUSA on to talk about yeah. this. Where is Kim Peretti? Where you need her? Well, I, you huh? know, I text her, call her. You know, she's you know she'll hit me back with a little emoji. You know, I'm like, oh, come on, Kim, you can't talk. Kim, Kim, step it up, okay? We need you to come on the show. <laughs> all right, knock it off. All right, all right. So, um, <clears throat> so okay, you pay the ransomware, you get your files back. So you gotta wonder what 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 does the FBI say to you then that you paid it? I mean, how do they treat you? Do they treat you differently. Not that you're an FBI agent or anything, um, and I don't expect you to speak for them, but um, I, I can't imagine they're happy about it, right? I mean, is there a warning yeah. that goes out, or what, what, what typically have you heard uh, happens in this respect? Yeah, the F and, and, yeah, and, and agreed. I'm not, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but my experience, what I've at least observed, is that, no, they're, they're very, you know, they're very understanding. They understand the position that an individual or corporation is in, and it's a tough position, and so... You know, they're definitely not there to try to prosecute you or to, uh, you know, or, or, or anything to that effect. They're really there to help. And so, if you, you know, if you pay the ransom, then it's kind of that. You know, that's what you did, if you will, right? And, um, you know, again, they're, they're there to help you in whatever ways they can as law enforcement. So, that's kind of where, that's kind of where, where it ends, if you will. All right. So, we tapped around it a little bit uh, during the segment. But what's the bottom line? How do you, how do you prevent this from happening? To you, I mean, what, do, what can a business do to prevent this? What exactly do they have to do to make sure that this doesn't happen to them? Absolutely, yeah. So I'll start off by giving you the really scary cybersecurity answer, which is you can't do anything. You know, you can't prevent it, uh, which companies, you know, some companies like to say that, other ones like to tell you that they prevent everything. I'll tell you that in reality, well, like a lot of things in life, you can't 100% prevent it. There is no technology or processes to put in place that would, absolutely 100% prevent it. You know, the technology as well as people are, you know, fallible. Um, however, um, I think that there are, there are a, a number of ways that you can help mitigate that risk, help reduce that risk. Um, you know, one is having a good, uh, you know, antivirus, anti-malware system uh, that's updated because believe it or not, I come across companies that they have it and it actually hasn't been updated. You know, so I think that's, that's certainly one way um, 
DNS protection. So one of one of the things, one of the top things that I recommend is, and there are a few vendors that do this, is um, having a, a tools installed, in particular, sort of a DNS filter, if you will, where any uh, request from a computer that goes out to the internet to go to a website, whether it's by the name, the domain name itself, or an actual IP address directly, gets filtered. And so there are a couple of companies that do this well, and they have teams that, of researchers that spend the whole day um, you know, just putting in IP addresses and domains that are malicious so that they're able to block it. So I, I think that's, I have found that to be an actually very effective way of, of reducing the risk you know, then there's the user. You know, there's technology and there's all sorts of other technology, quite honestly, you could throw at it. Uh, but, it, you know, a lot of it boils down to the user and user education. Um, you know, educating the users on not opening attachment that they don't recognize. So, hey, I got, a, I got an email from George Reedus. I know George Reedus, but I wasn't expecting George Reedus to send me, you know, a file about whatever it is. Um, you know, so, so there's that. Uh, certainly, of course, having good backups, right? Not a preventative measure, but you know, certainly a, a, an important measure is having a good backup, having a tested backup. And that's part of what I found recently in these conversations I've had with folks that have, you know, that have had the backups. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, in some cases, the backup got encrypted. But in other cases, they go to restore and they find out their backup doesn't really work. All the files right. aren't there. So, right, so it has to be tested. It has to be in a secure place. It can't be susceptible to the same ransomware. You know, the, the, all this has to be thought out and, and done in a very uh, specific manner you know, to make sure that you're not susceptible to the ransomware in a way that it could bring your business down. Right? Yeah, and, and I would say to that, George, uh, you know, the statistic, at least that I saw from uh, Inc. Uh, magazine, is that around 60% of small businesses that experience a significant cyber incident, such as ransomware, close within six months. Wow. You know? Yeah. And I can tell you, again, personal experience. I Businesses that, you know, if they're not getting their data back, that may very well mean that they're, they're done. It's over. So there's there can be a significant impact for sure. All right. Stick with us, Alan. Okay, folks, it's time to transition to commercial break. But hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for this much-awaited and much-needed network. We're going to solve some problems. I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause some quick messages from our sponsors and move right back with our special guest, a member of the board of InfraGuard, Alan Espinosa. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. The voice of cybersecurity. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology 
to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at Sock Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE ATT&CK framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from Sock Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.sockprime.com with promo code radio2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. Promo code radio2019. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, Director of Security Operations for Island Business Systems, Alan Espinosa. So, Alan, we were talking about ransomware in the first segment, and I want to sort of continue on the same theme uh, for threats against some of these small businesses. What is, what is business email compromise, and what, what does it mean to a, a small company? Yeah, so business email compromise, and, and is frankly, in my opinion, that sort of the the number two biggest threat right now, right behind ransomware to businesses. <clears throat> and what it is, is um, typically the way it materializes is, uh, again, a, a nefarious actor will uh, send an email to someone at a company that has authority to move funds and request that funds be moved. And they're pretending, purporting to be someone from inter- internally from the company sometimes. They could purport to be the person's boss, personal director and such. Uh, sometimes they purport to be a vendor. And so they'll send an email that says, you know, dear so-and-so, you know, uh, you know, please move you know, X amount of money, wire transfer, here's the wire transfer amount. Uh, and most of the time, what it looks like is, and these are very targeted, by the way, and, and the, 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 uh, the criminals do their homework extensively on these, um, or at least I've seen them do their homework extensively, where they will they'll do some reconnaissance first. And so they'll go on LinkedIn, other social media platforms, and, and find out from a company who looks like, you know, they may be authorized to move money, right? They work in accounting, accounts payable, that kind of thing. Um, then they'll look and see who the person's boss is. And what they'll oftentimes do is, you know, track those, those folks and uh, sometimes find great opportunities. Like I know a case where the, uh, you know, the CFO was going on vacation to St. Martin with his family. And so the criminals found that to be a great opportunity because they sent an email to someone in accounting um, and that email looked like, and I'll get into that in a second, but that email looked like it was coming from that CFO and that email said, you know, hey, Nancy, it's so-and-so, you know, I'm in St. Martin, don't have time to really, you know, talk about this, but I need you to wire $100,000 to this account, you know, immediately. Well, you know, if you're the person sitting in accounting that just got that. And as far as you know, from what you see, that's coming from say your CFO or someone authorized to move money and they're requesting that you do it immediately. Well, chances are you're going to do it. And that's exactly what, what's happened uh, a lot of the time uh, is the money gets moved and um, you know, uh, companies end up with pretty, pretty significant losses. So what are the different types of BE scams? BEC scams, like what, what, what kind of different types are there? It seems to me like we're coming right back to this as far as the attack vector, the emails, the, it's just a total nightmare. But um, let's get yeah. into the different types of scams and we'll, we'll come back to the email in a bit. 
Okay. Okay. So aside from the email, uh, bogus invoices. So that's become quite popular where, um, you know, again, the criminals are creating a bogus invoice, sending it in, especially if it's a company that receives a lot of invoices. And for that matter, a lot of times the bogus invoices look like they're from a vendor that said company utilizes. And so, you know, they just uh, go ahead and pay the invoice and maybe they'll put a note in there that says, hey, please update your, uh, your information. We have a new, you know, a new wire transfer number. Uh, please utilize that instead. Uh, and so, you know, and for the most part, companies are not, you know, the, especially smaller to mid-sized companies, they're not necessarily picking up the phone and validating that every invoice they receive, especially if they receive a lot of them, are valid. You know, what I find, how often is this successful? I'm sorry. Anyway. Yeah, no, what I find interesting about these is like your you know, more social engineering, right? It's not so much, you know, clicking a link and, you know, installing malware, right? This is like, hey, let's have a dialogue. Maybe we IM, maybe email back and forth, right? And, and really yes. the social engineering component, it becomes, you know, an actual interaction, right? Right. Yes. So in the, in the case of business email compromise, while technology is involved, right? That's the whole email part of it. While technology is involved, frankly, you know, that's a small percentage of the, of, uh, of the, the attack vector, if you will. It's really, uh, you know, social engineering. It's really right. fraud. It's like the old 419 schemes, right? It's, like, it's crazy. It's just over email now, right? It's a little better, a little more targeted, right? Absolutely. Yes, right. absolutely. I got you. I got you. Um, so so they're, they're bogus uh, invoices. There's... Uh, you know, impersonating attorneys. So that's one that's kind of been on the rise a bit uh, is, you know, impersonating a, a corporation's attorney. A lot of times that, that information is publicly available. You know, they'll list it on their website. They'll say, contact our attorney at this, at this address. It's like, well, thank you very much. Now you just told me who you utilize as your attorney. Uh, so they'll impersonate an attorney in order to either have funds, you know, moved uh, on behalf of a client or sometimes to just collect data, quite honestly, on their client so they could, uh, you know, get to the people that do move the funds. Um, there's impersonation of, of, you know, folks within the corporation. So kind of like what I mentioned earlier with the email is, um, you know, pretending to be someone in that corporation, whether it's through email or frankly, even through a phone call. Uh, I once did a, a sort of a, a, a side gig with a company where I got to call a particular client that had uh, wanted us to social engineer them and see how far we got. And, you know, I would call and tell people I was with IT and uh, I won't go through the whole thing, but I essentially led some folks to, you know, reset their passwords on a bogus site. Some didn't, some were really good about it. <laughs> Told me they'd call me back because <laughs> they never heard of me and wanted to verify. Others were like, yeah, sure. No problem. So again, unfortunately there, there's a, you know, it could be a number of ways to social engineer someone. So these, these scams really do work. Do you have an idea of how, how often they work or what's the uh, percentage of success? Yeah, so here's what's really crazy. Uh, according to the FBI, a, a, a finding that they put out last year in 2018, they had noted $12.5 billion in losses through, uh, as a result of business email compromise. Wow. So think about this for a minute. $12.5 billion is a lot of money, but keep in mind, that's what the FBI, that's what was reported to the FBI. Not everybody reports it, you know, or if they do report it, not everybody goes to the FBI necessarily. So I certainly don't have a number, but I would, I would believe that that number is much, much larger than even the $12.5 billion. So it's, it's lucrative. And I know here in North Texas, I, I, I know it's, it's, it's been effective, a number of companies. Well, I say so that it's lucrative. I guess when you say $12.5 the first question that comes to my mind is, where did that money go, right? And what yeah. is it being used for? Obviously, you know, criminals are probably taking a huge chunk of that, but how, ma how much of that money went to, anti to fund anti-American interests around the globe and anti-Western interests? I mean, there's got to be some type of information, intelligence on that, because that's what really, I think, and I would hope, would motivate a lot of people to put in a lot more stringent controls around this. It's just not businesses losing money, right? It's just, that's right. not where it ends, right? It, you're right. It's not where it ends. I, I actually don't have any, any figures on that, but that's a great question that I'm happy to follow up on. But you're right, George, it doesn't end there. And 
you know, uh, the FBI, for example, they're, they're absolutely great about helping folks that are, that are victims. And what, what they typically say is the, to contact them within the first, you know, 48 to 72 hours. Uh, and there's a chance, no guarantee, of course, that if they're able to get to it in time, you know, it could get intercepted via the SWIFT system or, you know, other money transfer systems that are, that are utilized uh, internationally. But un- unfortunately, you know, a lot of businesses don't know to contact law enforcement. I think a lot that I've spoken to are embarrassed to really contact anybody about it. Uh, but once the money's gone, once it has absolutely passed all the various banking systems and controls that we have in, in place in the U.S., and it's gone to, you know, such and such country, you know, it's always overseas, and it's always some country that we have absolutely no jurisdiction, extradition, nothing. Uh, once it's there, it's, that's it. It's gone. It's just gone. You're not seeing it again. It's over. So how can this be prevented now? What, what, what should we, you know, what kind of tips can we give small businesses in a sense that they can actually start building their security posture to prevent this from happening to them? Yeah. So, um, you know, technically there, there's some controls you can put in place. It kind of even goes back to the ransomware discussion, you know, where you can uh, put a, the banner that says this email is not coming from this network. And that one, believe it or not, is kind of important um, because part of what's happening oftentimes with business email compromise is the criminals, they send an email from essentially you could say one of two accounts, either a, they've gotten into your system. Okay. So they've gotten into someone's account and they're actually utilizing that account, in which case that's very bad news because that account is legitimate, right? And it's internal in the company. Um, But more often than not, what they do is they'll set up a domain name that seems that's written out and spelled very similarly to your domain name. And, and I'm seeing this more now with, you know, sort of them getting more creative with the use of, of um, uh, homograph, you know, sort of phishing, where they're taking, I'll give you an example. You know, they're taking the Greek O, which is similar to the Latin O, which is similar to the Cyrillic O, okay? And they might send an email that, that looks like it's coming from Bank of America, right? The O and the of. But in reality, that O is not an English O. And so it's not coming from Bank of America. But you think it is because you look at it quickly. And, you know, I don't think you can blame people. You take a look at it and say, yeah, this is coming from Bank of America, for example. And you trust it. And so they're getting more and more slick with that. Sometimes they'll just, you know, kind of spell it slightly differently. They'll, They'll make it as such, the domain name itself, the email address, they'll make it as such that, a typical quick glance, which is what we do. I think most of us don't have time to sit there and focus on the email address for a couple of minutes. A quick glance, you know, you won't catch it. So uh, I think the banner, as, as much as it doesn't seem terribly useful sometimes, is something to do is put the banner on uh, email addresses on your internal uh, system whenever an external email address, uh, you know, is, uh, sends an email to you. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that uh, certainly putting good processes in place. So again, there's no technology, but this one really more than anything boils down to good processes. And you know, I think so. And I think it's a little, it's somewhat similar to the controls and ransomware uh, around the email. But of course we went, you know, move money is a totally different thing. You know, move money controls are totally different. I think, you know, there obviously can be controls in there to mitigate this type of risk and, and making sure you authenticate that the original message and the request is actually coming from the customer. Um, you know, we've done a lot of this in the banks, and obviously, uh, some of these small businesses don't have the controls that the banks do to, to, to make sure this doesn't happen. Not to say it doesn't happen in the big banks, because it does, right? It happens from time to time, but mm-hmm. I think you know there are controls in place to mitigate this to a, a great deal. So, if you're a, a, a BEC victim, you know, what, what do you do? I mean, this, can can law enforcement really help you at this point? Um, or, or is it something that, you, you know, you just lick your wounds and move on? Yeah, I think the very first thing you do, quite honestly, is pick up the phone and call law enforcement. Yeah, I highly you. recommend calling the FBI, but you could, you could call the Secret Service. You could call other agencies, but do yeah. it immediately because you're on the clock. The time, you know, the clock is ticking and the money may be recoverable. Yeah, and so, maybe sure you go, it's federal law enforcement, right? Because you want to be able to stop that money, you know, before it hits international lines, right? 
Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you call your local law enforcement, it's just going to probably take a little bit more time to escalate up the chain, if you will. So yeah, I do recommend federal law enforcement to be the, the first step. Yeah, definitely. And you're right. You're on the clock and there is a period of time there where there, there could be a possibility that money could be recoverable. So act fast. Uh, don't hesitate. And uh, don't vacillate in your decision. Make sure you make it right away. All right. Look, Alan, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the Director of Security Operations for Online Business Systems, Alan Espinosa. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, a member of the Board of Directors for InfraGuard, Alan Espinosa. So, Alan, I want to talk a little bit about people traveling internationally, right? We're talking about all kinds of dangers to small businesses, and small business people often travel overseas to uh, garner business. What should people traveling internationally be concerned about when it comes to their data and their privacy? Oh, they should certainly be concerned about their data and their privacy. Well, their privacy not being present <laughs> and their data getting into the hands of others, be it the government or you know, other businesses and criminals and such. Uh, you know, there, there are, you know, I think we see it in the news oftentimes, there are certain countries that stand out that I think it's fairly well known at this point that they monitor just about everything, you know, we'll call them out a little bit here, you know, China, Russia, and such. Um, but the reality is that I, you know, highly recommend that if you have data, whatever it is, your personal data, corporate data, if you have data that you do not want in anyone else's hands other than your own and whoever you've authorized, and you're traveling to another country, you're taking a device, mobile phone, tablet, laptop, whatever it is, 
Um, number one, I recommend that you look at that country's laws when it comes to search and seizure. Um, you'll find it interesting that there are, company, there are countries that uh, absolutely uh, reserve the right, the U.S. is one of them, to seize your device without a warrant upon entry. And so they could just put out their hand and ask for it and say, yeah, we, we like your phone. Unlock this for us. <laughs> We'd like to take a look at your phone. And in some cases, they could you know, keep it up to several days, um, quite honestly. So I, I, I would be concerned about that. I'd be concerned about uh, you know, uh, countries looking at seizing your devices, looking at your data. So that's kind of scary. I mean, you go someplace overseas and it gets seized that your, your, your devices get seized at customs. Can you really expect to ever see that device again? I mean, no, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. I'm just, I'm just assuming have, it's not. Right? Like, you have to personally go recover it from customs in some of those countries. And, uh, you know, so it's like, if you, you'd have, when are you going to be back? Right. Yeah. 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 I don't. I mean, you know. I mean. So this is a big. This is a really big issue. We could probably do a whole freaking show on this, right? But yeah. Um, and there, if I may, there's there's a particular cyber. I won't name him, but a particular cybersecurity uh, industry expert who, uh, upon traveling to Germany, right? Which you know, Germany is a friendly country with the U.S. for sure. Uh, upon arriving in Germany, he was asked for his mobile phone. And he refused. He said, you know, I'm not giving this to you. And I said, okay, well, you have one of two choices. You either A, surrender it, and we'll let you into the country, or B, you don't have to surrender it, and we're banning you for five years. <laughs> so, um, you know, sometimes you get an ultimatum like that. Uh, so what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, here, here's some of the sort of the recommendations I have. Frankly, the top recommendation is don't take it. Okay, if you have a device that either has sensitive data on it or has access to sensitive data, so it doesn't necessarily have to reside on it, but you could access it from said device, frankly, don't take it with you. You know, get a, get, you know, get a, a burner phone, as we call it. You know, just buy an inexpensive phone that you're going to take with you and essentially utilize it if you need to and then throw it in the garbage. Uh, you know, there are other, other devices you could take with you uh, to not necessarily compromise your data. If you have to take data, if you say, I have no choice, I'm doing a business transaction or something in a foreign country, whichever one it is, and I have to take data, well, then, you know, I suggest taking on an encrypted USB drive, okay? So kind of minimize the, the, the exposure here to USB drive. That's still, you know, still, they can still reach the data potentially, but, you know, take it on an encrypted USB drive or upload the files to an account, that you'll access remotely. Now, you have to be careful what account that is, and I highly recommend sort of setting up a separate account, not using, you know, your own, say, uh, you know, your, your regular corporate account, but having some sort of secondary account where you'll access the data that you need to access only. That account only has that data because you really have to assume that, that the government in, in, in a lot of places and in all likelihood they're, they're reading your mail, they're seeing all your activity, and no matter how encrypted it is or whatever else you have going on, they're reading it. They have access to it. Um, there's, you know, there are ways that you can encrypt data on a laptop. So if you say, well, you know what, I, I, it won't work. I can't just take a USB drive. I need to take a computer with me because I'll need to edit files or something like that. Okay, well, you know, maybe look at a, I try not to recommend product specific, but I will say this one, maybe look at taking a Chromebook that is pretty darn secure, quite honestly. And so, and you could easily wipe when you get back. Um, if you have to take, you know, Windows, Mac, Linux machine with you, because that's just what's required, then uh, certainly encrypting your drive. And there are ways of encrypting, of creating encrypted volumes that are hidden. Because again, you get to the border with said laptop and, you know, whatever country, let's say it's China, they say to you, well, sir, open that laptop up. We want you to log into it. Well, all right. You know, you open it up and you log into it. That doesn't mean they have access to your data necessarily because you could have uh, volumes on it that are encrypted and hidden. And, you know, if they can't find it and they don't know it's there, then, you know, that could help you. Uh, quite well, what if they do find it? I mean, I mean, there's, are there laws against some of this? I mean, in, in, especially in China, aren't there laws against specific encryption? There are, yeah. yeah. And if they, yeah, if, uh, you know, yeah, good luck, basically, if they find it. I mean, you know, it may mean detention. It may mean, you know, deportation. Uh, probably deportation is the least of your worries, quite honestly, in a situation like that. 
But sure. I, I don't know. I think this is a very, very um, important topic because I think a lot of executives, even in big companies, they like they go to the most dangerous places and do things that are just mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling to me. They take all their devices. They have like board meetings in these places where surely the government is is monitoring what they're doing and listening in. And you have to assume so, like you said, you just have to assume. And um, I just can't believe how much uh, you know business folks, especially in, in big you know companies and Fortune 500 companies here in the United States, trust our adversaries because they see them as customers. They don't see them as adversaries mm-hmm. and they have a totally different mindset than someone like, you know, Andy and I have because of the experiences that we've had in the government and the information that we've been exposed to and, and the things that we've um, done in our careers in terms of investigations and intelligence and, 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 and serving our country. So I think um, it's just a totally different mindset and trying to get them to understand is a huge challenge. I mean, do you see, that cultural shift as being part of the challenge and in, in, in making sure people understand and are educated about the threat? Yeah, absolutely. And so what, what I'm seeing, especially with larger enterprises, they're, they're getting this, they're understanding this now. And so of, I would say you know, l- large percentage of large enterprises have corporate security policies and they have uh, actual devices and processes in place to assist folks that, you know, have a business need to go to some of these countries or right. even if they're going on a personal are in place. If you're going to travel here, this is the protocol for your device, right? Exactly. Aha moments though, like in the, like for companies that you're working with or, you know, you've heard of where they just they figured it out before something bad happened and they said, ah, oh, you know what? I'm on board with that. Was there any technique or training or whatever it was that was like successful before something bad happened? That was that aha moment that you can recall. Yes, yeah, so, so, so some companies do have specific training for uh, employees that travel overseas to you know, a number of countries that are flagged, if you will. Uh, so in those cases, I have seen folks that have come back and said, you know, <laughs> it's interesting that you know, they told us not to trust the safe in the hotel room, which, by the way, I, I consider it a decoration. Don't trust the safe in the hotel room, you know, because they came out of the shower one day and found somebody ra- rifling through the safe. You know, a hotel employee, quote unquote, for example, that's a true story. You know, that's, that's really happened. And it's actually happened more than once um, that I personally know of. So yeah, it's in that case, what saved them was that they understood not to put things in the safe, uh, you know, to, to keep uh, certain things with them. So they actually took the device into the shower with them, you know, into the bathroom, at least maybe not the shower. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's one of the cases of, of many where the user, Training uh, and the, the vigilance by the corporation paid off. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, there are lots of cases to the opposite where they just, you know, I, I talk to folks and mostly, mostly what I hear is that, like you said earlier, Andy, they, they, trust, the, they trust the corporation they're dealing with in another country and they think, yeah, this, these guys mean well, they just want to do business with us. Um, or they just think that their security is good enough. You know, we've you know, taken the laptop, it's encrypted. My security team's done all they can. And here's the challenge. When you're dealing, if you're dealing with a nation state, that's a different ballgame. You know, you're not just dealing with some uh, small-time criminal. You're dealing with a nation state. All those sophisticated tools you have, they'll help. But they're not necessarily a guarantee. So what do you do when you return? You go to one of these dangerous countries. You have to assume, I think, that uh, say you take, you know, a, a drone device or, or I guess there's two courses of action if you take your drone device or if you take your own device over there. Um, when you get back, what's the, what's the process? Yeah, if, I mean, if you take, if you take a, a sort of a burner-type device, then for me, it's drop it in the garbage, basically. Don't, please don't come back and, and go hop on Wi-Fi in your corporation or at home uh, and sign in and, and such. Just it's, If it's a burner device, literally crack it, throw it in the garbage, do what you want, and just get rid of it. So uh, destroy it, it. destroy it, absolutely. Dispose of it. Yes, consider it compromised. Just consider it compromised. Now, don't if do anything coming, to it first. Don't don't wipe it. Don't forensic. Don't reset all everything. Just just throw it. Just destroy it. You you can sure those things are those things are useful, but I would say physical destruction trumps everything else. So if you can break the chip, I've done this. I've opened it up and just snapped the SD chip. Uh, you know the onboard memory. Then, then you're in business. That's going to be pretty either impossible or extremely difficult for someone to recover. 
uh, but just throw it out, quite honestly. If you're coming back with your, you know, with your corporation's laptop, well, by all means, follow whatever their policy is. I don't want to interfere with a corporation's policy. You need to follow their recommendations. If it's your own or if you are in a small company and don't have said policies, then frankly, wiping the machine. So in other words, reformatting, re, you know, erasing everything that's on there using a, a strong uh, uh, you know, wiping uh, software and, uh, and then reinstalling everything at, at minimum, at absolute minimum when it comes to, to you know, laptops and those kinds of devices. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. We got to have you back on uh, maybe with uh, some of your friends in the FBI and, and uh, maybe you can put you on a panel or something, have some fun. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks. You bet. My pleasure, George. Thank you, guys. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 